and welcome to the DH Podcast. I'm Rachel Rochester. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Martha Nell Smith. Dr. Smith is a distinguished scholar, teacher, professor of English, and founding director of the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities at the University of Maryland. Her numerous print publications include five singly and co-authored books, including Emily Dickinson, A User's Guide, Companion to Emily Dickinson, and Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Letters to Susan Dickinson. She has also authored scores of articles and essays in journals and collections such as American Literature, Journal of Victorian Culture, South Atlantic Quarterly, Women's Studies Quarterly, ESQ, and A Companion to Digital Humanities. Dr. Smith is also the Executive Director of the Emily Dickinson Archives, too. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Rachel. It's really terrific to talk with you this morning. I wanted to start by asking about your work founding the Institute for Technology and Humanities at the University of Maryland. What were some of the biggest obstacles to getting the Institute off the ground? Well, the biggest obstacle was, and I don't think this will surprise anyone, finding funding. Mm. Um, I first had the idea, and the idea was collaborative. Several of us had the idea of founding the kind of institute that I was already enjoying the support from. And that institute is the Institute for Advanced Technology in the Humanities at Virginia, where the Dickinson Electronic Archives are still housed. Um, So anyway, I thought it would be great to have an institute such as that at Maryland. Several of my colleagues thought that. We went and talked to our dean, who, uh, and this goes back to 1996, so think how long ago that was. Right, so early in the movement. Yes, it's uh, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And our dean said, that is a fantastic idea. I hope you get funding to do it. So, So then we formed a committee and we started talking amongst ourselves about how can we make this happen. And one of my colleagues who was directing the uh, Renaissance Center here um, said, you know, we do work with NEH. Maybe we could put in for one of their challenge grants. So one thing led to another, and we, uh, a committee, worked together to write a challenge grant to the National Endowment for the Humanities. That entailed not only writing the grant, figuring out a budget, going around to different uh, units throughout the university, such as computer science, the graduate school, uh, the libraries, the College of Arts and Humanities. So, you know, there were a lot of... um, people who had stakes. There were lots of places that had stakes. And we really needed that in order to make MYTH or the Institute happen. Besides doing all of that, and besides penning the grant, figuring out the budget, etc., we needed to go talk to NEH officers um, and get their feedback, which we did. Therefore, we expected, we didn't expect to get the challenge grant the first time. (laughs) And lo and behold, we did. I mean, we were pretty shocked. And, um, but it was great. We were shocked with great pleasure. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
Yeah. And then um, I was chosen as the director, the founding director. And it was it was so wonderful to put the Institute together and to work with so many different people, colleagues throughout the college and throughout the university um, who are at the faculty level, other colleagues who are staff members who work in various capacities, whether it be technical staff or staff that's going to, you know, help me figure out whether the budget's going to work or not. Um, and then students, graduate students and undergraduate students alike. It was just exhilarating putting the Institute together. And as my partner said, she said, you know, a lot of our colleagues, they're like, oh, I got to grade papers or I got to go to work or whatever. And she said, but Martha, as she's starting myth, bounds out of bed and says, I have to get to work. And that really is how I felt about it. Um, so yeah. for those of us who are maybe 20 years behind and are just putting together similar institutes, uh, do you have any advice on what we should do as we're getting started? One of the most important pieces of advice I've already named, which is you need to think through, okay, who are going to be the players? in this institute and what is it going to take to make it work i would think that anyone would need some kind of support from your information technology unit or your computer scientist or both or engineers um, you need to have players throughout you know who are humanities scholars and critics and uh, knowledge workers who have projects that are well served by being digital. Um, you need to have, you need to work with administrators and sometimes you have to persuade them mm -hmm. that it's going to be worth spending money on. In fact, most of the time you do. And I know that um, early on in putting myth together, some uh, one or two of our administrators had the mistaken idea that myth was going to make a lot of money, <laughs> which never argued that. But um, a couple of administrators thought that. And um, then there, you know, you need to make all so you need to make certain that all of the support you get. Or are promised from different units that you follow up and make sure that they follow through on them. Um, and that, you know, so take care of all of that practical business. Put together a team of people who are likewise excited and, um, you know, spend some time together lunch together, talk about what your ambitions are, talk about what your reasons are for wanting such an institute, uh, talk it up a lot. One of the things I've, I tell individuals and I tell groups is that people believe what you say about yourself. So talk yourselves up on campus and um, talk about how necessary the work you're doing is and let people see your excitement. Um, also, don't be afraid to go for the big grants that you 
don't think you can possibly win because something might happen to you like happened to us when we won that initial challenge grant. But also it's good practice for learning to uh, make your case for why what you're doing is important, why it's worth somebody's money. At the same time you're going for the big grants, go for the small grants because you can put together a lot of small grants and the more of those the you win, the better you look to the larger grantors. So I guess I'm throwing a lot of things out there. And one of the phrases I use to sum up what I say is, uh, about starting such a thing is be a practical visionary. <laughs> you know, be very practical about it, but also don't lose your vision in being practical. And uh, never let the funding tail wag the research and intellectual and artistic dogs. I mean, I've seen some people become either discouraged in digital humanities or not be as excited as they initially were because they started they started shaping their own interest according to what they either thought or what was winning grants, you know? Right. And instead of making the case for what they wanted to do to the grantors, and that can become a very unhealthy situation if the funding drives the research I rather think than the research driving the funding. Right. I think that's all wonderful advice. And it is. I, I've seen people fall into that trap, too. It certainly makes you less enthusiastic about the work you're trying to do if you're just doing it yeah. because you think it might get funded. Yes. And, you know, that's a and it's hard. I'm not I'm not saying that. Um, it's not easy to fall, you know, to be tempted by that. Right. Um, but from what I've seen and from what I've experienced, I strongly recommend against that. <laughs> so I think you've already made quite the case for the importance of the NEH. Um, but as, as we both know, it's on the budgetary chopping block at the moment. So I was wondering if you wanted to say anything else about the importance of the NEH or how it's helped shape your work. I think that the NEH um, is vital to humanities work and to advancing research. We don't have as many funding resources as uh, some of our friends in the sciences, although their funding is being cut as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we don't. We don't have as much. And also the NEH and the NEA are both symbols for what we care about as citizens and what, you know, part of what our country is all about. And so I think we should all be out there arguing for both the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. They don't take much out of the federal budget. And so the reasons for cutting them don't make fiscal sense. It's not going to solve any financial issues to cut either or both of those um, 
agencies. And so it's about ideology and it's about being threatened by, um, I guess, some kind of free speech and uh, artistic practices that are unbridled by various prejudices that people hold. And, you know, freedom is very hard. And I think as humanity scholars, we need to make the case to the citizenry as a whole, freedom's a difficult thing. We never said it wasn't. And especially when you see things being portrayed, whether it be in novels or films, on canvases, in sculptures, in movies that offend you and that were supported by the government, you know, I think we need to say, okay, I understand why that bothers you, but that's that's not a reason to defund it. And it's not a reason uh, to say, well, that kind of art can't be funded by either, you know, by the NEA or the NEH. Um, That's a reason for conversation and talking about what, you know, our differences in perspectives. And um, this is something I've, I've thought about a lot. And I have a article that gets cited maybe more than any of my other articles, even my, some of my Dickinson work, that's called uh, The Humanities Are Not a Luxury. And they're not. Um, they're central to making us think about what it means to be human and what it means to live together and work together. So I just think we need to constantly make arguments for the NEH and um, and make them on the grand philosophical level as we're making arguments for the practical levels of their funding. Yeah, I the wonderfully put, I, I really agree with everything you just said. I want to change gears a little bit and go back to one of the things that you said about the Dickinson Electronic Archives and how they're still held at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big anxieties a lot of our digital humanities researchers and scholars have is what will happen to their projects if they move on, if they retire, if they move to a new institution. So uh, was there anything in particular that you did to try to ensure the longevity of the Dickinson archives when you left? Uh, Well, I'm still, I was never at Virginia. I had a network uh, research fellowship and they have supported me from the beginning. And the deal from the beginning was always that if I gave them good reason to continue a baseline of support and that I kept working um, to maintain my own support in terms of project managers and things like that, that they would continue to, um, you know, and it gets tricky. I mean, think about how old the Dickinson Electronic Archives is. It's, uh, I founded it in 94, so it's 23 years old. Um, and, you know, the software we worked on at the beginning is nothing like what we work with now. So how do you keep all that? Or do you write 
just simply write over that. And one of the things I love about Virginia is that they have maintained everything and uh, even the more crude forms of (laughs) the Dickinson Electronic Archives. And uh, I've made to them, but they also believe this, that institutional memory is really vital and important. And um, there can, there's a reason for keeping some of the older projects around, even if they're not used as much. So on the current version of the Dickinson Electronic Archives, in the lower right-hand side, um, you can click on and go to the Dickinson Electronic Archives 1994 to 2012. Um, and it did. It looked quite different than it looks now. And um, But I think that trying to keep most of what was there up and available is important for again, institutional memory, and for seeing what has happened. Um, Software itself changed dramatically in 2005 to the present, and um, I think that people who are just now coming into DH perhaps don't realize that and don't have an appreciation for how difficult it is to maintain some of the older stuff. You know, it's vulnerable to Mm -hmm. hacking. Um, There's all sorts of things from link rot to, you know, things just, they don't work anymore and you have to spend a certain amount of energy making sure they stay intact. We've all learned to follow certain standards that are more transferable as you go to higher grades of things and um, can be updated more easily. But um, now I can't remember what your original question is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that's really interesting what we've moved on to. Um, And one of the things that I've been really impressed is that you've, you've been able to keep the Dickinson archives looking current, even while preserving, preserving that institutional memory. Can you speak a little bit about the origin process of the Dickinson electronic archives? Sure. Um, When I published my first book on Dickinson, which was way back in 92, um, I received a fax. So think about that. (laughs) From Jerome McGann at the University of Virginia, who, you know, has the Rossetti Archive, was instrumental to the founding of IATH, the Institute for Advanced Technology and Humanities there. And I knew him in terms of the fact that I knew his work very well. And we had mutual friends, but I had never met him. And I was pretty blown away that this man whose scholarship I was using um, sat down and took the time to write a two-page single-spaced facts. And part of it was, um, in talking about my book, he said, you need to make a hypermedia archive (laughs) of Emily Dickinson's manuscripts. And this is back in 92. So think about this, 92, 93. Right. Uh, I guess it's 93 that this is happening. 
And I'm like going, Hypermedia Archive, what in the world is this man talking about? And so we met for lunch at a conference we were both attending, and Jerry filled me in. And he, his pitch to me at that point was, he said, for your book, to illustrate your points about Dickinson's manuscripts, didn't the publisher keep you to, you know, uh, nine halftones, ten halftones, or whatever? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, um, even a well-meaning publisher has to do that because of the expense of producing facsimiles and high photographic images. But imagine if you could share the images of all of the manuscripts you're talking about with your readers. Well, it didn't take long for to sell me on that one. <laughs> so thinking about the future a little bit, where do you think the digital humanities goes from here? Are there any projects or lines of research you're particularly excited about? I well, I like the way that the D, that DH is becoming more and more integrated into everything, and also I like that people seem more interested in content delivery than there was a spell in DH where people were obsessed with tools, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that people are more content oriented. Now that could just be people I'm, you know, engaged with. But when I directed Myth, one of the mantras was content first. Because I saw that, you know, you've got these powerful tools that can do all kinds of neat stuff. And I just insisted as we were working on developing tools or as we were learning to use tools, that we always had a so what or why to use a particular tool. So where does that get you? You know, how does the tool help? And so I, um, I like that DH is becoming, it seems to me, even more and more integral to ongoing work. Um, I don't know where... It's, I don't, I hope it will never displace um, an interest in content. And, and I think it's not, as I've said, but I do still worry about that a little bit, where it's not so much what you're doing and why, but, oh, look at how I'm doing it. And isn't this fun? That right. Makes sense. Yes, it does. I think there are a lot of very beautiful DH projects and people want to make these cool, innovative, interactive things and, and sometimes don't necessarily think about how that supports the, the content they're trying to convey. Right. And, and for me, connecting people is the most important thing. I mean, I've written a lot on uh, diversity is not a luxury mm-hmm. in DH. And I am just thrilled to see DH becoming more and more diverse. Because when I started, Rachel, I would often go to conferences and there would be myself and maybe one or two other women, no people of color. Mm -hmm. And I was certainly the only out queer person. Uh, That changed. 
but it was very, it was a shock because I, you know, as a feminist scholar who had been working on diversity issues for years, even back in the early 90s, I was just completely shocked to get thrown into a world that was mostly white and male. Yes. And it, I mean, it still is, though it is getting more diverse. You're right. Yeah. And it's, and I don't like, I, I have noticed that one of the ways you were talking about it still is when I look at some DH conferences, it's like diversity is over in a pocket instead of permeating the entire conference. Right. You know? Yeah. It's one stream. <laughs> yeah. And for me, one of the arguments I make in a lecture I gave just last week at Miami and that I've given in a couple of places is that diversity is not a stream. It permeates everything. And it's not something I I critique one of my own pieces, um, most of which I still agree with, <laughs> software of the highest order, the human touch. But in there, I talk about the intermingling of race, class, gender, sexuality. And what I critique is that intermingle is the wrong word, because those things are not intermingled into other things, as if they're separate things they per- they already permeate everything and that needs to be recognized interesting i don't know if that made sense no it does you know i think it's important to realize that identity is porous right yeah and we have all of these things that are inextricable right they can't be broken apart they all influence one another i think that's a good point uh- yeah, and diversity is often talked about as if it's that thing over there. Right. Yeah. It can be segmented <laughs> off. This part of my identity can be can be broken apart from the rest of it. And of right. course that's not accurate. No, it's right. not. So that's one of the I think most important points of the new kinds of arguments or newer kinds of arguments I'm making about diversity is not a luxury. Because it's not. No, it's not. We sat down here on the podcast earlier this year with Tanya DePass. I don't know if you know her work. Um, I know of her, yes. And so she talked about diversity in gaming, which is making a lot of similar points. You know, I think the tech industry has has been fairly um, oblivious to the need for diversity within it for a long time because they just thought there wasn't a market for that. And I think right. now sort of all aspects of the tech industry are finally starting to think about how important it is and also that their user base is not who they thought it was, that it's, it's yes. a much more diverse user base and people want to see themselves reflected in that. Yes, I completely agree. And certainly everything I read about gaming and what people tell me, that all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Are there any events or <laughs> are there any events or projects that you'd like to promote before we sign off? Well, let's see. I'm in my Dickinson world. I am on May 18th. Uh, there's a documentary at the Morgan Library in New York City, where and it's a documentary talking to various Dickinson scholars 
and biographers. And I'm in that documentary. So, of course, I'm encouraging people to go see it. Very cool. (laughs) Uh, And then on the Dickinson Electronic Archives, we have some absolutely amazing projects that we're about to bring online and others that are on development. One is on Dickinson's soundscapes. Uh, Marta Werner and Beth Staley are working on that. Um, Gabrielle Dean and Jane Wald are working on a project about Dickinson's reading that is just mind-blowing, and that one will come online quite soon. Uh, Gabrielle's being is the main curator there. So keep an eye on the Dickinson Electronic Archives, too. I've always believed that my work in Dickinson speaks way beyond Emily Dickinson. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. This has been a great pleasure, Rachel, and I wish you and everyone there the best in their work. And, you know, keep in mind, diversity is not a luxury. It's very important. And always remember the importance of having fun in your work. That's true. Play-based DH. I love it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. You too, Rachel. Bye.